Um, tonight we will be taking a one-week side study um, called Raised with Christ through the third chapter of Colossians. So before we start, you will need a Bible. So if you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand and one of our ushers, Sam or Darby, will get you a Bible. Again, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3. And so as we turn there, um, let's just open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that it would be uh, glorifying to you. Lord, that um, what you want to speak to your people today, Lord, that you would do that. Lord, that we would humble our hearts to you. Lord, I pray that um, I would speak by the Spirit and anything that's of the flesh would be forgotten, Lord. But what you have to declare tonight, Lord, that we would remember that it would reign true in our hearts. Jesus, this is your time, and so we devote it to you 100%. And it's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So, Colossians chapter 3. But before we jump straight into chapter 3, we have to remember that Paul's writing this epistle as one letter that's to be read to the church. And so before we jump to chapter 3, it's important to look at what Paul's doing in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Paul spends the first half of his epistle simply declaring who Jesus Christ is. Simply laying out for the church who Jesus Christ as a person and as God is. The, the church in Colossae was, was in uh, what you would say the afternoon of its glory days. It was a church that was kind of on the decline. That they were doing really well, but then they started to slip. And so Paul needed to write to the church to correct the doctrines that they had started messing up, that they had started to change for themselves. And so it's important for us to see what Paul's doing. He establishes the person of Jesus Christ, and that's absolutely necessary for us to understand the second half of the book. You guys need to understand that whenever you go through the Bible, whenever you're growing in your faith, it needs to start and end on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so before Paul even talks about us, which we'll see he'll, he'll do some of, before he even brings us up, he lays this foundation of Christ so that we can understand who he is, that before all things was Jesus in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit, right? That all things came through him, for, for those who have been in the church, we know this very well. Jesus created everything, right? And we brought sin into the world. And for the person of Jesus Christ, that he's perfect. And for us, we take what he's, what he's telling us, and we start to build a foundation of faith. This is what Paul really wants the church to do. He says, you guys need to build back your foundation because your building's starting to sway. He says, your foundation isn't rooted in Christ anymore. Because all Christians, if they're truly Christians, will profess a faith in Christ, right? That's just something that we do. We profess a faith in Christ. But I'm going to be honest. There's many people that don't have that as their foundation. There's people that say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but it's more of like an add-on to their life. That they've spent years developing who they are, who they want to be, deciding what they want in life. And then they say, I accept Jesus. He can follow me along on this adventure. Rather than seeing what, what Paul will write, that, that we should die to ourselves and that, that our lives are hidden in Christ, and, and that we build from there. And so we need to understand that. It's so imperative for us as Christians to have a fully functional understanding of Jesus Christ. Right? Not for wisdom's sake, right? Because that doesn't do us any good. But, but needing to know who Jesus is so that we can have a functional, functional relationship with him. Right? If we want to partake in what Jesus has to offer on the daily life, 
We need to know who he is as a person, amen? And so we build a foundation based off of Jesus Christ. Now, now also, I, f- I found this very interesting. For me, I need to do this more. I need to read my Bible to understand the attributes of Christ, because when I stop to do that, I start seeing good things in my life, and I start attributing those to me, right? Am I the only one? Where it's like, I see something good in my life, and like, I feel good about myself, because I think that's me, right? But I need to understand, anything good comes from me is going to come from Jesus. And so if we don't know who Jesus is, we're going to start seeing good things, and we're not going to realize that it's Jesus who's doing those things. Paul also tells us in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not set aside the grace of God, for it is righteousness comes through the law. Then Christ died in vain. It's an interesting concept, right? It's an interesting concept because we as humans like to ask ourselves, who are we, right? We are, we are just... We are just so surrounded by our own identities, right? Whether it's social media, right? Whether we find it in our family or our friends, we just like to know who we are. But the Bible, the Bible sets this up in a very specific way as we enter into a study um, of what Paul will call the old man and the new man. He, he shows us that, that how we act doesn't determine who we are. So get that out of your mind. How you act doesn't determine who you are, Right? If I want to be a, a skater, I would dress like a skater, right? And you all know what that looks like. That pops into your mind, right? How they talk, how they walk, how they get around, right? You know what that looks like. And so, so this world attributes how you act is who you are. The Bible says who you are should determine how you act because your life should be in Jesus, right? So who you are determines how you act. And it's not us anymore. It's Christ. And so Paul establishes the, the necessity for putting Christ first in our lives. And so we, we start in our passage in chapter 3. And this is a very interesting passage because verses 1 through 4 are established as a, a transitional passage for us. Verses 1 through 4, Paul's kind of shifting who he's talking to, right? Because the message of Christ, that, that's for everyone, right? We want, we want everyone to know who Jesus Christ is as a person, right? Jesus declares that himself, that he wants all people to know him. But then he says this, verse 1. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. And he continues on in his commands. But he says, If then you were raised with Christ. And so he kind of narrows his focus. He says, You church, you who have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm talking to you. Right? It's like Pastor Mark says, Why are you confused when a non-believer acts like a non-believer? Right? We want to hold the world to these standards before we even start talking to them about Jesus. We want to get mad at people who, who are acting maliciously, right? who don't know Jesus. But Paul's holding the standard to us. Jesus holds the standard to us. And so we should look inwardly first, right? And so, so let's do that. Before we, before we keep going, I just want to, I want to explain a little bit about this, this transition that Paul has. He, has. he has two distinct parts of the book. The first two chapters we said was simply about who Jesus is. And the second half, he starts to get into the application. And so if we were going to narrow those down into to Christianese terms, 
two Christian words, we can say that the first half talks about justification and the second half talks about sanctification. And what I mean by that is the first half shows us that Jesus and Jesus alone takes away our sin and makes us righteous in the sight of God. We are justified before the Father simply because of what Jesus has done. Nothing to do with us. And the second half, he talks about sanctification, or this process of us now becoming more like Jesus. The process of us becoming more holy. And so, the following verses, as we begin into chapter 3, I I want you guys to really understand this. The following verses are not a source of justification. Because Paul got that over with in chapter 1 and 2. As we look at the attributes, we can't start saying, I have to do this if I'm going to be right with God. Right? We can't, we can't view this as a way to earn our justification. Because 3 and 4 simply talk about sanctification. See, there's, there's a lot of Christians who are, are quick to defend and declare the truth. Who, who will boldly stand up and say when there's a sin in the world. Right? Who, who will declare truths about God, and that's great. But there's just as many Christians who will do that, but often don't demonstrate the truths of Jesus, right? The ministry of Jesus was modeled that way, right? That Jesus was willing to both act and declare truths of God, right? That he lived in a way that models for us how we should live, right? And so, and so that's, what, that's what we do here. Titus 1.16 says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. And I know, I know I have been caught in that struggle. Where, where I come to church, I work at a church, guys. It's so easy for me to look like I'm doing good. It's so easy for me to say, yeah, my, my life with God is just rocking right now. My ministries are booming. I'm doing so much. I'm serving. But I'm denying him when I'm out. I'm not sh- spreading the gospel. I'm not acting in a way where if somebody knew I was a Christian, they would go, ooh, that's interesting. Like, maybe I want part of that. They're like, that guy just yelled at me on the road, right? That guy just had road rage at me. He can't be a Christian, right? And so we need to both declare the truth of God, but we need to demonstrate it in our lives. And so Paul, Paul stirs us up for this change, this change of, of the old man to the new man. And there, there's a very interesting motivation behind this, but before we go into the, the, the good motivations, I just want to give a couple of cautions in motivations that I've, that I've seen personally. Mistake number one, thinking that sanctification can equal justification. If your motivation for taking on these attributes is to seek justification with God, you've already started on the wrong foot. Because justification and sanctification go hand in hand, but justification is the first step to sanctification. And so we can't go into this thinking, the more I do, the better I'll be with God. Right? And so, so we, we knock that out of the park. Second mistake, and I think I do this, I think I do this more than the first mistake, honestly. We, we, we want to change because we start to say, I hate this about me. There's something in our lives that we're like, I hate this about me, and I want it to change. Right? I hate this, I hate this, I hate this right? Conviction is a great and necessary part of Christian life, right? The Spirit convicts us and stirs us. But Paul also talks about in his epistles the very big difference between a worldly sorrow and godly repentance. That there are people who look like they're changing for Jesus, 
but it's rooted in themselves, right? Whether, woe is me, right? Oh, and I'm so upset about this thing in me. I want to change. And the church goes, oh, that person's repenting, but not always, right? Because they're, they're simply changing things that they just don't like about themselves. Motivation isn't meant to ease our conscience, it's, it's to be able to stand before a holy God declaring the glory of the works of Jesus Christ through our lives. We can't, we can't be motivated to change just to ease our conscience. When we feel bad, just wanting to fix that for ourselves, right? And so we jump in to three motivations that Paul gives us. In verse 12, he says, he says this. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved... Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, right? Just in those, those first couple of lines, though, we see three really big motivations that Paul gives us. The first being that we are the elect of God, or the chosen in some translations. He says, therefore, as the elect of God. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 7 will say this. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. That's really convicting for me, right? That, that it's not because of, of our great numbers. It's not because of the great works that we do that we're called the elect of God, the chosen of God, right? Simply put, we've never attained anything through our own works that's worth celebrating, there's nothing that we've accomplished that we can be ecstatic about, that we can build a life around, right? And so we should celebrate that we're God's chosen. That should motivate us, that it's not by us, that God simply chose us because he loves us, right? The second one is God set us apart. He calls us holy. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God. And this goes back to, to an earlier point. But simply the fact that we don't do works to become holy, that we don't have to work to attain holiness, that Christ through us has already made us holy, and so naturally these works will produce if we're to follow him. Right? But that should be a big weight off our shoulders. That it's not about us. That God's chosen us. And we aren't doing works to become holy. But God's already declared us as such on his account. And then the third, and probably the strongest motivating power that we should have, is that we're called his beloved. Simply the fact that God loves us. And I want you guys to think about that for a moment. Because you'll probably hear that every Sunday in church every Wednesday night service, that God loves you. But think about that for a moment. Think about the ways that the Bible talks about God and his greatness, how holy he is, his perfection, everything that he's done. And think about how the Bible talks about you before you had Jesus. That you were filthy, that you were an enemy of God, reviled, right? Alienated from him by your evil works. And that God loves us right? And so, so those two points show us the distance that that love goes. Not only are we, are we this low, but God is that high. And he still bridges that gap simply because he loves us. 
See, when somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't know the law and they sin, they're simply breaking the law, right? God's command, they don't follow it, they've broken the law, right? But when we break the law, when we sin, we need to view it as more than just, I broke a rule. We need to see the ways that we break the Father's hearts when we sin. That when we fall short of what he calls us to, it's not a standard that he was arbitrarily caring for us, but we break his heart because he wants to see us becoming holy. He wants us to participate in this process of sanctification. And so we see those three motivating powers coming together for one distinct purpose. These all point to one distinct thing, which is God's grace. And this, at the core of it, is the gospel, right? It's not, it's not some convoluted thing that, that we have to struggle to understand. But the, the basis of the gospel is that, that Jesus loves us, and it's by his grace that he accepts us, right? And so, by no means of, of, of our own power do we see mortification, which is just putting to death our sin. We don't see mortification or sanctification come by our own power. But what we need to understand that they're rooted in the power of Christ displayed on the cross. Amen, guys? And so we, we, we need to really soak that in. And now, now it's, this, is, this is a scary point that we're at. This is a very scary point. Because, because some people will take this and they'll run with legalism. They'll see a list that they now get to follow that might make them better people, that might make them right with God. And so how do we motivate ourselves to change while preventing legalism in our own lives? I had to sit with myself for that question for a long time. How do I, how do I want to motivate myself to change but not make it about me, not make it about just following the law? And I love this quote from, from author D.A. Carson in, in volume two of For the Love of God. He says this, people do not drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven effort. Everybody say grace-driven effort. Grace-driven. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer and obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. And we cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. And we slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. And so we slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. And I love this quote simply because it's so true. Like, like nobody has accidentally become godly. Like nobody accidentally stumbled into holiness where they were like one day a lot better than the day before and they get to work and everybody's like, hey, Greg, what are you doing differently? Because you look a lot better. Oh, I accidentally stumbled into godliness. That doesn't happen, right? We as people don't do that. But it's this word grace-driven effort that Carson, that Carson talks about that really stuck out to me. And there's another, there's another great pastor, his name's Matt Chandler, who kind of breaks this down. And uh, some of these points are from him. And so, so we're going to break down grace-driven effort a little bit. So point number one is that grace-driven effort comes from a new heart. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son 
of his love. See, I love, I love this, this, this part of scripture. Colossians, just by the way, is my favorite book in the Bible. But, but, but understanding grace-driven effort, this, this power that pushes us, not our own effort, but that Jesus allowing us to change. And so, so point one is it comes from a new heart. And Colossians 1.3 kind of shows us this in a visual sense. He, he kind of gives us this picture of almost an address change, right? That, that our home was in darkness, and in Jesus, our home is now in the light, in his kingdom, right? And so, so we can view these things now no longer as a list of things to do or to not do, but a lifestyle built upon the reality that God has changed our home from earth to heaven, that we are no longer citizens of earth, but are citizens of heaven, and so this grace-driven effort is rooted in that fact, and with that comes a new heart. Number two, this one's really cool, and this I think I need to work on. It says, grace-driven effort attacks the roots and not the branches. It attacks the roots and not the branches. This, this idea that, that the surface behaviors that we don't like, that we see, are what we often try to, to correct, Right? This idea that, that our hearts are separate from our actions, right? That if I can control the way I act, I can control my, my faith life, right? It's, it's a very, very gnarly point in my mind. God bless you. Bless you. See, it's like, it's like this. My, my beautiful wife, Amanda, is over here with her parents, and, and she probably won't say this out loud, but there are days where I am not a great husband, there are days when I just get it wrong. From the moment I wake up, I'm just grumpy, right? Where I sleep until 11 o'clock, and she's cleaning the dishes. And then I say I'm tired, so I take a nap at 1.30, and she's vacuuming the floors, right? And I'm a bad husband. And I'm like, Lord, I feel so bad. Lord, I feel so bad. Help me to change, right? And so I can correct my behavior, but then I'm just a grumpy person doing the dishes. Oh my gosh, now I'm doing the dishes when she's watching TV. What the heck, right? This isn't what I signed up for, right? And so we try to change the service behavior without getting to the root of the problem, which is our hearts. And so a grace-driven effort doesn't just try to get that surface. It goes for, for the, the real problem. It pinpoints the heart. Number three, grace-driven effort goes beyond a peace of mind. See, it's, it's not motivated from simply, I feel bad for this sin. I've sinned and now I feel guilty. That, that, that we're, we're disappointed in ourselves, right? Because I, we can get like that. Let's be honest with ourselves. We can, we can just be disappointed in ourselves someday where we sin and then we just mope all day, right? And I feel bad for that sin, but this is what David says in Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And we all know the story of Joseph, right? When he's a prisoner in Egypt, right? A slave. And he's in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife keeps pushing him. She says, Joseph, I want you. And he says, no. But how does he say it? He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he says that in Genesis 39:10. See, we need to not root this, this motivation of trying to get our minds at ease to feel better about ourselves, but rather being motivated that, that when we sin, our hearts should break in remembering the goodness of God despite who we are. 
that, that when I sin, God is still faithful. That my heart should break that I've, that I've let him down, but that he is still faithful, right? And that my motivation should be driven of not wanting to bring my mind to peace, but reconciling myself with God, right? Reconciling those shortcomings in my life through the power of Jesus. And number four, this is probably my favorite and the last point of grace-driven effort. It's violent. It's violent. A grace-driven effort that is to put to death our sins, or as, or as Paul says it in verse five, to put to death your members which are on the earth. That's violent. That's a violent thing. Put to death your sins. See, because many of us in our, in our Christian lives, we tend to just try to fend off sin, right? Oh, I can, I can overcome this temptation until five o'clock when I have to go to church. Or I can overcome this temptation until my spouse gets home, right? And we fend off the sin as long as we can until we have something that kind of breaks our day, right? Something that can pull us away from that. But at that point, it's still not dead. And for a lot of us, that, that stems a source of frustration. Because we go, God, why can't I overcome this sin? It's because you're not putting it to death, he tells us. Because you like, you like to fend it off. Some people, I'm going to be honest, some people don't even want to put their, their sin to death. And that blows my mind. But then I catch myself doing it. Where, where they don't want to put it to death, they almost just want to like train it, right? They, they want to control their sin and like give it conditions, right? Where it fits into their lives. There's a, there's a show called, I think it's called When Animals Attack, right? And there's this, there's this, there's this episode in the show where they're doing a photo shoot with a woman and a lion, and she's supposed to lay down next to this lion, and they're just going to take a couple pictures, right? Well, of course, lions aren't tame. And so this lion attacks her, right? And they're so surprised, like, oh, the lion was trained. He, he's good for taking pictures. He's done it before, right? But, but that's the same thing we're doing with our sin, a wild animal we're trying to tame, where there's still dangers, and so it can still creep back up. Even though there may be days where the photo shoot goes great in our lives, there's going to be days where the lion's hungry, and he's going to be stronger than any tamer can be. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so that, that causes a lot of frustration for us. But we have the blessing of grace-driven effort. And so Jesus, through this, initiates the process of sanctification. Colossians 3, verses 2 through 3, says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, before we go any further, this is just, just something I want to throw out there, and I don't mean to offend. Christians who think your life are boring, there's a little bit of remedy in this verse. Because there's, there's definitely points where all Christians feel like their life is boring. Like, oh, the Christian life is go to church, act good, go home, try to be my best, right? And it gets boring, right? We get bored in that life. And it's because we've forgotten the fullness of verse 3. For you have died, and then we stop. And then we stop. Because we put ourselves to death, and we forget, and your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. See, we start, we start to not see things happen in our lives, right? Where it's like, oh, it's so boring. I want something like big to happen. 
Like, why, why don't I have this, this great life that, that people tell me, that the, that the pastors tell me about, that my Christian friends tell me about? And it's, it's because that, that our life is gone. We've died. And so our lives are now hidden in Christ. And so when we don't see that life, it's because we're not showing Christ. Because we're gone now. And so the only thing that can remain to stand is the life of Jesus through us. But a lot of us, a lot of us get into this mindset of, of, I died. And then what we try to do is we try to build a new life after that. that. That Jesus starting us from square one for a lot of people means, okay, I'll die. I'll get rid of the old stuff. And now I'm going to try to build my life the way that I think it should look like. I'm going to build my life. I'm going to try to be more godly. I'm going to put these behaviors in my life that are good and suppress these bad behaviors. But that's not biblical at all because our lives are in Jesus. And so he declares what our lives should look like. But Paul says, set your minds on things above. I think Colossians is, is one of the, the most applicable epistles to us today, and I may be biased, but let's be honest. We're living in a, in a day and age of distraction, right? We're living in a day where it's so easy to distract yourself, right? TVs, social media, right? I have, I have the entirety of the internet right here. Anything I want to know, I can just Google it really quick and tell you, Right? I can, I can solve the, the most complex math problems from a piece of metal in my pocket. I can do whatever I want on here, including distract myself. And so this, this, this declaration of setting your mind on things above is necessary in this age of distraction. Because, because what, what, what people will tell you, and it's so true, is that a lot of what holds us back aren't morally evil things. It's not the things that are morally evil that tend to hold us back, but the things that are morally neutral. Things like Netflix, right? Netflix is good, right? But some days it's not, right? My wife will tell you there's, there's days where I say, all right, hon, make sure I do my devos tonight, and then I watch a whole season of The Office, and then I eat some ice cream, and then I go to bed, right? Because I've, I've found ways to distract myself, right? But it's not a morally evil thing. Social media, that's a great way to get connected, that's a great way to keep in touch with people, right? Who here has an Instagram? I have an Instagram. I have like five pictures on it, right? But here's what I do. I love to just look through it. I'll, I'll scroll through all the people that post that I'm following. And then here's, here's the kicker. Within the last month, you know, you know how at the bottom you can, you can search for people? But before you type somebody's name in, it'll give you pictures from people you may know or popular people. So I'm scrolling through pictures of people I don't even know. People I've never seen before going, oh, that looks fun. Oh, that's cool. And I'm sitting here distracting myself, knowing that there's things better, better used with my time, right? And so, simply put, Paul says, set your minds on things above. And what this looks like at the very core of it means just seeking Jesus. That, that you should have a desire to serve him that you should have a desire to have him create in you, to work through you, that you should be pursuing him, right? Paul doesn't leave you with, with a point of confusion, like set your minds on things above. All right, well, what does that look like, Paul? Right? It's the sky. I don't see anything up there. Right? He says, no, on the heavenly places where Christ Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
And so we're to set our minds on Christ Jesus, to desire him and everything that he desires for us. And see, for everyone, it will look functionally different to set your minds on things above. It'll just look different. Some people do devos differently. Some people worship differently. And that's totally cool. But for everyone, there's certain things that it should contain. And I'm sure there's more than these four that I've come up with. But these four are solid ones that I can say should be in everybody's time of setting your minds on things above. So the first thing, the first thing should be scripture, right? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. God's given you everything you need to know about him, right? Don't tell me you've learned everything, right? You could read the Bible every day till you die, and there's still stuff that you'll have to learn in eternity. There's still stuff that you'll have to learn about Jesus. And so, so we should be growing in our knowledge of God. Number two is prayer. This is our intimate time with God, right? Whether it's by yourself or whether it's with other people, just a, a time of prayer with the Lord where we can communicate back and forth with him, where, where we can say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Lord, thank you for this. And so we spend time with God in scripture and in prayer. Number three, number three is so important. Number three is Sabbath. Everyone should be having Sabbath days, right? Given that you are working in the other days of the week, right? But everybody should have a, a Sabbath day. And, and this, this is a day that, that should just be spent with you and the Lord. Maybe not all day, right? We all have obligations to do. We all have family. But finding time on your weekends, for most of you, where you're just with the Lord, right? Because on God's Sabbath, he wasn't, he wasn't hanging out with man or any of the animals. It was him resting, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we should just be resting with God, taking in this, this time that he's blessed with us. With, um, sorry. Taking in this time that he's blessed us with, not trying to earn anything, right? I've noticed, and I, and I had to combat this very hardcore, a lot of my time in my Bible the past couple weeks was preparing for messages, right? A lot of my time in the Bible was preparing for messages, and I, and I thought that was good, and then I realized I was never getting just time with the Lord without any end goal besides just knowing him better, right? And so, so I need to be taking Sabbath of, of no goal besides Jesus. And so the fourth one is community. God's called us to community. If there's a Christian that you know who, who says, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ and he's my savior and they don't have a church, talk to them about it. Plug them in somewhere. Even if it's not here, maybe there's another church that you think they would get along great at, right? It doesn't have to be God speak. It's not a competition, right? We just want to grow the body. But God's called us to community. Now, here's something, here's something that I want you guys to, to realize, though, is don't confuse number three and number four. Don't confuse your, your Sabbath time with your community time. Because I've done that, and it felt great when it was happening, that I realized that I was depending on other people too much, right? Because community, community, you should be bringing something, right? The first three, scripture, prayer, and Sabbath, are just, is just God pouring into you, God equipping and edifying you, right? And then the fourth is community. And this is where you now have the opportunity to equip and edify the body, right? But if you're confusing your Sabbath in your community, well, I hung out with my friends and we talked about the Bible. So that was, that was my good time with the Lord, right? 
I try, I try to meet with, with, with my best friend Zach and uh, Dane and, and Wilson like every other Friday. And we just talk about Jesus. And it's solid time. But there's days where I notice I don't have as much to bring. And those are the days where I'm not spending my one-on-one time with Jesus. And so I'm not able to give back to the body. But, but I do want to reiterate as we continue, God does desire for you to be in fellowship. If you don't feel plugged in, talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to, talk to Pastor Brett in the back. Talk to one of the staff members here. Even just another congregant. And we'll find you ways to feel connected in the body. Because it's interesting that Paul, Paul subtly throws this in when he gives us the attributes. In verse 12, he names them to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, and then he talks about forgiveness and love. And there's a very, very interesting point to these attributes. And it's that none of these really come into play until you're with other people, right? I can't be meek when I'm on my own, right? There's nobody else to, to be above, right? I can't be, be merciful with just myself, right? That's, what, that's something that I can show other people, right? I can't be kind to myself. Well, I probably can, but I can't be kind to myself, right? These, these are attributes that come into play with other people. And so Jesus wants us to be in community with others. And so when Paul says, set your minds on things above, that's, that's simply all he's saying. Is he's saying Jesus needs to be your end goal. He says no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, Jesus needs to be your end goal. It can't, be, it can't be about what you want. It can't be about finding friends, right? It's got to be about seeking Jesus. See, because we, we start to, at least I know I do, we start to tell ourselves things like, if I follow Jesus, this will happen, right? If I follow Jesus, my marriage will just automatically be better. If I follow Jesus, my kids will just be obedient. If I follow Jesus, I'll find that soulmate. If I follow Jesus, I'll find the perfect job that I want. And what we start doing is that we start creating promises that Jesus never made to us individually. Well, well, yes, can Jesus do these things? Absolutely. Does he desire that for you? Yes, he does. Should you be praying about these things? Of course you should be. But it's in the Lord's time. And so we can't be setting ourselves up for, for, for making these promises. And then when they're not fulfilled, when we want, or if they're not fulfilled at all, we become bitter against God who never promised us these things, right? We say, we say God, I followed you. And so my life should be perfect now. And God says, I never promised that. He says, I told you in this world, there will be trials and tribulations, but fear not, I have overcome the world, right? And so that's why he wants us to seek him first, right? Instead of falling into the misbelief that he's not faithful because he's not answering the promises that we've made for him. And so we're going to close with this. I don't know if I'm short, but we're going to close here. Um, It says, um, backtrack. And so so we're living our lives then raised with Christ, right? This is what a, a life raised with Christ should look like. Not based off of us working to make it look like we want it to be, but that we have everything we need in the person of Christ Jesus, and through him alone have we been justified. 
And now we're in the process of sanctification by his grace and by his power. We see changes in our lives. And so, so we need to, to build this upon an understanding of who he is and what he does rather than who we are apart from him and what we can do apart from him. We need to understand where we lie in his plan. And so Colossians 3.17 says this, and Dane um, can come up as we enter into worship. But he says in, in 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, this should be a freeing passage for us. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, in in a full understanding of who God is, we have a hope and assurance in what he will do in us and through us. That whatever we do, if we're doing it for the glory of God, He'll make it work out how he wants it to. Not how we want it to, but how he wants it to. And so he empowers us to live according to the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we have a hope and assurance in the person of Jesus Christ. That he's declared us righteous, not because we were good, but because he was. Good to the point where he died for us. And so, so we celebrate that tonight with communion, right? That, that a perfect God, holy and just, the perfection of heaven, everything he could ever need, he makes us. Knowing full well beforehand what's going to happen. And so we sin against him, saying, God, I don't need you. God, I, I like you, but what you're, what you're saying that I need to do I don't, I don't want to do that. I have a better plan for me. I can build myself up better. And so we, we die in our sin. That's a natural consequence of it. And so Jesus saying, I still love you. As selfish as you are, as, as inverted as you are in your ways, I still love you. And so the gospel shows us that Jesus comes down in one of the, the, if you think about it, the most humiliating way that a God can come down as a human baby, helpless, crying, all of his powers wrapped up now in the confines of humanity. And so because we couldn't live a perfect life, he does so for us. He lives the ways that we should be living, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it so that when we break it, he can now say, you are no longer punished for that. I've taken that. And so he, he claims to be God and this upsets a lot of people. And you'll find that it still does to this day. And so we stand in the place of Jesus, taking some of those verbal beatings and a lot of countries, the physical beatings of what Jesus went through. But we see that he already went through that, right? He understands the pains that you're going through walking the weight of the cross, right? A holy God, weak to the point where he stumbles on his face, being tied to a post, can't catch himself. And so he's beaten, he's bruised, 
his beards pulled out, a crown of thorns shoved upon his head, humiliated, humiliated. Like, I don't think we understand the humiliation that Jesus went through. But he does this so that when he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, I take their sin that I can replace the life that they've lost because I've done it perfectly. So every sin, past, present, and future, lie on the shoulders of Jesus. Because we think the beatings are bad. We think that was the torment for Jesus. But the worst part for Jesus came when, when darkness, it says, covered the land. And a very unnatural darkness, one that we know wouldn't have happened at the time that he was crucified. Because at this point, God the Father says, Jesus, I got to punish sin. And so he pours out his wrath on his son for eternity, experiencing love with one another between the Father and the Son. Now Jesus experiences his Father's wrath, right? We all can remember a point where we were probably scared of our dad growing up, where they, they caught us or we did something wrong and we had to be punished for it. Imagine the weight of all our sins on Jesus. The punishment for that. So he dies. He's buried. But on the third day, this is where, this is where we live with him. Because he didn't just die and so neither do we. Although, although we are to put ourselves to death with him, he rises on the third day, right? But our sins are in the grave. He says, I can overcome your sin. I'm a holy God who can't stay dead. And so he's living. He's living and he offers that eternal life to us. And so in this time, it says he's long suffering. He's waiting. He's ready. He's preparing us a place in heaven, right? But in this time, this is where we as the church can minister to the lost sheep, where we can bring people back in because we celebrate salvation. For judgment day looks great to us. But for the non-saved, that promise that we so highly covet is going to be terrifying when Jesus comes back. Right? First John says that, that, that we preach the word to bring people to Jesus so that we might have our fullness of joy. God's preparing a party for us in heaven and he wants us to start inviting people. And so he will come back and we will just celebrate in heaven. But tonight... We take communion in remembrance of the price that he had to pay to get us there. His body was broken, so we take the bread first. And his blood was shed, and so we take the wine second. But we are raised with Christ. Don't stay dead in sin or with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for, for simply who you are, that you love us. And Jesus, we just want to worship you with everything that we have, Lord. And, and although it may seem insignificant what we do here, Lord, it is a sweet aroma to you. Lord, it's a sweet sound to hear your people sing. So Jesus, I pray that our lungs would be filled with the Spirit. Lord, that we would show how worthy you are as we worship you. And so God... Bless us tonight. Lord, meet us here. Lord, as we enter into your throne room of grace.
Jesus, you declare who we are. Lord, any preconceived notion, combat that in us tonight. Lord, even if that means drawing us to our knees, combat who we think we are apart from you and show us who we are in you, holy and perfect, your chosen people. We love you. We praise you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.